You're listening to Michelle Redfern and Mel Butcher on Lead to Soar, bringing you the best leadership advice and mentorship from around the world. Learn more at leadtosoar.com. Today, Michelle interviews Libby Lyons. Libby Lyons was appointed Director of Australia's Workplace Gender Equality Agency in 2015. She oversees the process that gathers gender equality data from over 10,000 employers, covering more than 4 million employees. In leading the agency, Libby is focused on working closely with employers to achieve gender equality. Soon after her appointment, Libby initiated the development of a strategic plan aimed at maximizing the agency's world-leading data set and expanding the reach and impact of gender reporting nationally and internationally. As part of this strategic vision, Libby presented at the United Nations Commission on the Status of Women in 2018 and 2019. Libby was listed in Apolitical's 100 Most Influential People Working in Gender Policy for both 2018 and 2019. She's a member of Chief Executive Women and an ambassador for Honor a Woman. Prior to joining the agency, Libby had a distinguished career in corporate affairs and government relations, including senior roles at BHP's Olympic Dam, Alcoa of Australia, the Western Power Corporation, and Telstra. So without further ado, ACTS brings you a lovely interview with Libby Lyons and Michelle Redburn. Welcome to Lead to Soar, another episode hosted by me, Michelle Redfern, and we are going to interview, we, I am going to interview a a woman that uh, I've admired for a long time and who actually helps me in my work. Uh, quite considerably more on that later and we're going to hear about her lead to saw career story and the reason we're going to hear from this woman today like many other women leaders around the world that we interview is that we know that proven and perceived leadership is the gateway to career advancement and creating a career that soars and we are going to interview her about Lee Tussaud and her career that soars. So without further ado, it's my very great pleasure to introduce Libby Lyons. Now, Libby is the current head or CEO of the Workplace Gender Equality Agency here in Australia. And as I alluded to, the Workplace Gender Equality Agency, or WGIA as it's uh, commonly shortened, is an agency, well, I'm going to let Libby talk about how it's a groundbreaking agency and the outcomes that it's creating, particularly for women in workplaces of all sizes. But I can certainly say that as a a person who is working very, very hard and will continue to work on achieving gender equality in workplaces and in society, the Workplace Gender Equality Agency provides me something that's extraordinarily important, data and facts. But before we before we do that, I'd like to officially welcome you, Libby. And well, I'm I'm going to ask you a couple of questions which you know about and a couple that you aren't, but welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Michelle. It's an absolute treat to be with you. And you know, I follow you with great interest. And so it's a real thrill for me to be with you today. Thank you. 
So Libby, let's have a talk about your soaring career. And you have soared all sorts of different places over the course of your career, right from primary school teacher into government, into semi-government, into power, into mining, and then back to government. So that's just my brief snapshot. Would you like to step us through your career and how it has soared for you over the course of it? Well, it's interesting, isn't it, Michelle? Because I started out my, as you quite rightly pointed out, I started out my career as a primary school teacher a number of years ago, more years than I care to remember, actually. <laughs> and uh, I started there uh, having left school and gone to university for a few years. Um, and, and I would have to say that without doubt, it is the hardest job I have ever done. Uh, but it, taught me so much it taught me how to deal with lots of different groups of people or stakeholders as we call them now because you had to manage your class and the other teachers and the community in which you you know you were working the school board the principal so it really really taught me how to manage different groups of stakeholders and how speaking to and communicating with different groups required often different language and different skill sets. And so it really was a fabulous foundation, I guess, for me to build um, the career that I, I have had to date. So um, I think school teaching is also probably, along with nursing, the two most important the two most important jobs and roles in our community, and they are probably two of the most undervalued. I think this pandemic has proven that uh, to us all how important those roles are in our communities. And I, Absolutely. Hope, I hope that as a result, we start to value teachers, early childhood educators and nurses more. Uh, so from there, I moved into IT, which was interesting and gave me, you know, a very, a more technical look at the world. And the reason that I got into IT was I found that I was able to understand tech talk and put it into language that everybody understood. So that was great. And I spent many years in the UK working in IT. I came back to Australia and uh, really fell into sort of corporate affairs type roles. And from there, moved into the resources industry where I held a number of positions in corporate relations, corporate affairs. So it's been an interesting journey. And now I here I am as, you know, heading up the Workplace Gender Equality Agency. So it's been an interesting journey, one I've loved. And if, would I change anything? Probably not. That's always good. I it, It's nice to reflect and I do encourage women to all, all leaders to reflect on where they've come from, how they got there and what they might do next. But it's always, there's not a lot you can do. And I think when you look back over the course of your career, there were clearly some some pivotal points. And I'm not going to use the pivot word. Well, there you go. I just did because it's overused in this <laughs> blooming pandemic. But from primary school teacher into government and resources, what were the I suppose, what were the inflection points that made you make the jump, you know, and, and take a, you know, make a career move? And to put some context around that, the fact that, you know, two things that you've said, number one, 
how women's roles, particularly those in teaching and in nursing, have been highlighted so incredibly throughout the year of 2020 in a global pandemic. And it's been highlighted how, how dependent we are on those roles and how undervalued and, frankly, underpaid compared to, well, even the resources sector, for example. I think that's one thing. But what was the what was the moment or that inflection point that took you from a, a teaching career into doing something else? What was was there a, someone giving you a bit of a nudge or yeah, what was it? Uh, it, it was I moved into IT as I said before, and the reason I moved into IT was when I was teaching, and I only taught for a few years. But uh, in the first year that I taught, we had this fabulous guy who used to take computing classes now so this is back in the really really early days of the pc mm-hmm. and uh, we raised the money for the school got a pc lab if you like and terry used to take these classes at the end of that first year it was decided that the teachers had to teach the computing skills and i was beside myself i thought this was ridiculous and i jumped up and down uh, and complained and it all fell on deaf ears And when I look back, I can see absolutely why they insisted that teachers do the teaching themselves in terms of IT, but couldn't see it at the time. Uh, So as a result of that, I thought, well, gee, if I've got to do this, I've got to know something about it. So I did some classes after school with this guy, Terry, who ran after, after school classes for teachers. And I discovered that I had a bit of an aptitude for picking it up, picking IT up, picking up computing, if you like but also in being able to, you know, translate it to others so that they understood. And so I started, um, not only did I start teaching my kids the following year how to, to use these PCs, but I also started to run the classes in the evening. And I thought, you know, I recognised that it was an opportunity for me to go on to stay really in education, but move it into adult education and teach adults how to use this up-and-coming technology and that's exactly what I did I I saw it as a a springboard and I went in and from there you know other opportunities knocked and I took them and I that's probably you know that has always held me in good stead I've always been prepared to take a risk where my career was concerned because I always love the next challenge and sometimes that works and other times it's not as successful but on every occasion where I've taken a risk I've learned lots and that's enabled me to move further forward so I think it was probably that it was seeing that there was an opportunity and I grasped it with both hands. Mm, Interesting it's it's great to hear that you've had the opportunities uh, which I think many of us have opportunities over the course of our career but perhaps we might overthink, you know, the ups and the downs and the ins and the outs. And, and like you, I like to take a punt or, and, and particularly when someone has taken a punt on me, I think, all right, then, well, I'm going to give this a crack and, and see what I can make out of it. I think the other thing that stood out to me from your story was that you were reading the play really well. So you had a, whether you, you would at the t- have time have said, hey, I've got a career strategy here or you were being very strategic and opportunistic and risk-based, but you saw that technology was going to become very, very powerful and you were going to be a part of that. So I think that 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 was terrific. 
one of the things that I've noticed already in how you've been describing your career is the use of the word language. You've used it four times already. And, and I guess looking, you know, particularly as you had a, a couple of roles in you know, government and corporate relations language, and then you use the word translate. How does language or how did language become a part of what you did? So communication and I guess the language that you used to communicate to advance your career, how did that sort of become quite a, I suppose, a core part of of your career moving forward? If there's no doubt about it, particularly as a teacher, you learn that communication is key. If you cannot communicate an idea or a concept uh, in the simplest of terms, then you will lose your audience. And I actually, I am quite a simple thinker and I am a simple speaker. I like clear, plain language because I don't understand complicated language. I simply don't. Mine just doesn't compute with that. And so I suppose as I've moved on, I've always tried to write and speak clearly and concisely. And it is one of the great failings, I think, in our young people today is particularly clear, plain writing. I become terribly disheartened when I see the quality of our written skills today in that I think people think that if you have a long sentence with three different commas in it, sometimes you don't even get the benefit of three commas. But (laughs) if you, you know, that means that you, you know, you're writing, you're a great writer and you understand and whatever. And actually, no, it just confuses people, I think. Short sentences, being to the point, those sorts of things are really, really important for me. And uh, it's because that's that's all I understand, mm. uh, short, simple stuff. So I think I discovered that early on and, and that's why I was able to teach and then move on into more adult education and, and so, so I went forward. I think that the success of any organisation or any group that you are in often uh, is down to the ability for you to be able to communicate with your employees, your shareholders or your owners, your customers, your community. The better you are at being able to do that, the more successful I think your business will be. So for me, communication is the absolute foundation for any successful business being able to communicate. If you cannot articulate the product that you want to sell Mm. and do it in a way that somebody wants to buy it, then you may as well close your doors now because your your competitor is going to gazump you. Yeah, couldn't agree more. And and in terms of, you know, what we, Susan, Mel and myself are in a career that soars and, and some of the other work that we do, it's around... The missing thirty-three percent, which which I know you've you've now been exposed to, that being able to speak with executive presence or gravitas is actually about using, as you said, the right language to the right people at mm. the right time, and particularly, you know, whether there there might be some of our listeners saying, but I don't sell anything, and I think, well, every person in every organisation is a cost to that organisation, and the organisation wants a return on that investment. 
So how do we communicate about, you know, what our impact is to the organisation? And, and the other thing I really resonate with is the simple language. The obfuscation is a, one of my favourite words. I'm a little bit of a word nerd, but there's a lot of obfuscation with the use of ridiculous language. And I, for me, it oh. feels like that and acronyms does my head in. I thought, what does that really stand for? Um, I don't know, but we just always use it. I'm going, well, I'm not going to use a blinking acronym unless I know what it stands for because someone's going to ask me. (laughs) Precisely. I'll tell you what I can't bear. Contractions. It has, not it's. Yep. Um, We are, not where, particularly in a document that's going out to your customers or Mm. your shareholders or your stakeholders. I know I'm old fashioned, but for me, that is, it's okay. I don't mind if you do it in Twitter, but actually not in in a document that's going out and that is representing your organization. Oh, you know, without a it, doubt. As I was saying before, we, we started recording, when, when you're on the earth for a period of time, I think you earn the right to a, a few things. One is that you've naturally got some wisdom and the other is that you've earned the right to be able to give people some direction. And I think that's really <laughs> quite okay. There's a lot of wisdom to be shared. And look, I always say, well, in fact, my mother gave me great advice when I was pregnant with my first child. She said, Michelle, just listen to everything, but discard most of the advice you get. But anyway, a very wise mum. Yeah, very wise. She is indeed one of the best leaders I know. If I think about you communicating, so you, you've travelled, we've kind of touched on your travelling through the various sectors and becoming more senior in your career. When you become, so that language that you're talking about and that ability to tell a story about the business's strategic and financial goals. Or in the case of government or non-government, um, strategic and impact goals, because it's it's not always um, a pure shareholder arrangement. But it's so, so important to be able to, to, to articulate that and to be able to fall back on your business strategic and financial acumen. Along the way through your career, can you think about, um, number one, who identified you as being high potential and then how they guided you or what were the experiences that guided you to say hey I've really got to focus on communicating the right stuff to people shareholders and stakeholders you know it's really interesting I worked in a big telecommunications company for a while I worked at Telstra and there were some fascinating people there and really really interesting people and I experience we share Libby because I was there for 15 years (laughs) Well, you, you certainly beat me there. Uh, you, would have, you would have got long service leave. I didn't get, get nearly as far as long service leave. But, um, but I, you know, the thing about Telstra when I worked there, there were some fantastic people that worked in senior management there and I had the absolute pleasure of working um, with a few of them. And I think that because of the role I was in, I was very fortunate to be able to watch uh, because I was in a corporate affairs corporate relations roles I was able to accompany and watch senior leaders as they engaged with other senior business leaders or other government people ministers premiers you name it and I learned so much by just being in those meetings and listening and listening to the way, and I have to say most of them were men. In fact, I can't think of one senior woman at that time that I ever went to a meeting with. They were all men. But I listened and I learned such a lot. And I always remember 
Ziggy Switkowski in particular went into a meeting with um, a Premier one day and actually said, you know, government's no different to business. Sometimes you have to spend money to make money. And that has stuck with me forever because it is so true. Sometimes we do have to spend money to make money if we're running a business. So I've been fortunate to be able to listen and learn. And I listened and learned early on. I think the person who probably recognised the ability that I did have was a wonderful man called Tony Ianello, who was the managing director of Western Power here in Perth. And it was Tony that actually brought me back to Perth. He was managing director of Western Power and was brought in to effectively bring the organisation together to break it up into four separate businesses. And I came in leading his corporate affairs function. And I think he did. He took a bit of a risk with me. I'd never headed up a corporate affairs function before. As it turned out, I was only there for just under two years because the whole time frame for breaking Western Power up or disaggregating Western Power happened much quicker than anybody imagined. So it was one hell of a learning curve. It was an amazing job. I learned a lot but it was through Tony's insight perhaps into what he saw in me that allowed me to go into that job and learn a lot in a very, very short period of time. And, uh, you know, I'll be forever grateful to him and I keep in touch with him. He is, I've never had any formal mentors in my life, but I've had lots and lots of informal ones. And Tony is most certainly a very a great friend but also a fabulous mentor to me and whenever I'm um, you know feeling like I need to discuss something or uh, just you know chew the fat over a particular issue that I can't seem to get my head around Tony is always on the other end of the phone always good for a coffee and a sausage roll and we catch up not so regularly as much these days as I'd like to, but uh, we certainly still catch up on a regular basis. So he, and of course, in building up a business to essentially disaggregate it, you've got to look at all, you've got to look at the financial aspect, you've got to look at the, the business, okay, so who's going to sit where and why? Why are we breaking the business up into these four parts? What will actually sit? What parts of the business will sit in each part of it? And then, of course, you know, being strategic in the way that you do it to ensure that you're building viable, independent businesses out of one big monolith. Yeah. And um, so for our listeners not in Western Australia, in the rest of the world, Western Power was the wholly owned government, well, power organisation. And and I do recall at the time, Libby, you know, it wasn't without controversy that that decision was made, as many uh, disaggregations, privatisations of, of government assets can be. So your ability to tell, to number one, understand the stories about the strategy and why this was happening, but then to be able to not only tell the stories through yourself, but to guide senior leaders and, and executives with the, you know, the, the strategy around, the, you know, the corporate and government relations and affairs and the communications that were going to stakeholders. That must have been a really a stretch-worthy kind of assignment. So what do you think Tony saw in you or how did he see what it was that you could bring to, to that role? First of all, I think he recognised that I was a quick learner and uh, that's always been really important 
to me and my career I, you know and it's one of the advice I give young women these days your skills are transferable just because you've spent all your time in the healthcare sector doing a particular role does not mean that you cannot move your skills into the resources sector or into the construction sector absolutely not our skills are transferable and I had spent you know a, a few years in the telecommunications industry and I guess Tony saw that uh, my skills were more important than my knowledge of telecommunications and that he probably picked up that I was a quick learner so I think that that helped I think the funny thing is, you know what, Michelle, I am a good strategic thinker. However, I remember many, many years ago when I lived in London, I did one of those sort of psychiatric personality tests and I actually came up really low on the strategic thinking score. And it actually, I found the test the other day, isn't that hilarious, the report <laughs> that you got. And it said that I was not a strategic thinker. And so I went through the first part of my career not, believing that I was strategic in any way, shape or form. But being strategic, I think, is innate. I really do. I think you can hone your skills, but I think being strategic is actually innate. And, you know, I've worked with people who are clearly strategic thinking is not something that is innate in them. And you try and lead them towards a more taking a more strategic view on things, but they can't. It's just so I think it's innate. I think you can hone your skills. And I think that that's the beauty of, of working in a, you know, an environment with, with lots, and diff, lots of different people. We don't all have to be strategic thinkers. In fact, goodness, it would be hideous if we were all strategic thinkers because we'd never get anything done. I was um, just going to say there'd be a lot yeah. of us sitting out in that future world <laughs> that a lot of us like to sit in and, and imagine the possibilities and nothing would be getting that's done. That's right, exactly. I am a strategic thinker, but that's what that's certainly... The thing that Tony picked up about me, that I was strategic and this, you know, you certainly needed to have a strategic view of things and, and that helicopter view of things to be able to have worked in that environment. And, you know, when I look back, Michelle, it was a stretch, that job. It really was. It, it, it challenged me in all sorts of ways. But at the time, I didn't think it was, you know, because when you get stuck into a job, you enjoy working with the people. You've got a great team around you. You've got challenges and problems that need solving. You just get in and do it. And you never, I've, I've never stopped and thought, goodness, this is a challenging role or goodness, this is stretching me. I've yep. just done it. And I think that that is, that is me. I, you know, I'll just get in and do it. I'll roll up my sleeves and I'll get it done. And I'll think back. And, and I guess that I will always, when I finish something, look back and think, goodness, that was tougher than I thought it was going to be. But, you know, how rewarding. Mm. Oh, if I was to do a bit of, you know, amateur, you know, analysing of you, I'd say your ability to take risks and, and make those career jumps, those lateral moves is based on the fact that you are a quick learner, which means you actually like learning. And I think that's such an important part of you know, we call it growth mindset now. It's like, you know, have a crack and yes, you might not get it right, but you'll never know unless you try. And and for me, that I think is really important. That characterises what you've been talking about. And the other thing that I really relate to and appreciate that Tony spotted was the fact that 
as we become more senior in our careers, those transferable skills, you know, yes, you might have started being, oh, hello, a primary school teacher, and then you went into IT, and then you were in Telstra. But the reality is, there were some technical things associated with your employer, and, and perhaps even for you know, I certainly know we have some of our listeners and our members, in fact, a great many are in the engineering and technical fields or tech fields, but you might have started off that as say your undergrad and even a postgrad, but those skills don't serve you necessarily as well at particularly senior and executive level. It's those other skills that are developing along the way that we've got to pay attention to. So those transferable skills that you talked about and Having a, a career, you know, informal or formal mentor, but that sponsor who says, aha, I have spotted something in you and I want to help develop that and come and work with me because I think we can do some stuff together. And I suppose that leads me to my next very unscripted question. But, you know, I, I look about at someone like Tony and your story and the, he probably would have had people say to him, but what does she know about the energy business? What does she know about a government-owned asset? She's worked for, you know, God, she's an ex-primary school teacher. And he would have said, just go with the flow here. This woman's got it. I guess th those transferable skills become so important. And the transferable skills won't necessarily be the technical skills you learned in, you know, if you've been fortunate enough to do a degree or a, a technical or a vocational um, apprenticeship those become less important as you progress through your career and other skills, those developing those, you know, the business strategic financial acumen skills become more important. You've said that you listened, you watched, you listened and you learned. What else did you do or who else gave you advice about what you need to do more of to keep having a career that soars? I think the other thing, that's really, really important is to get to know and watch the people around you, the people that work with you. And the reason that's really important is I think that you need to look for skills and abilities in those that work with you that they also may not see in themselves. And I know that through Tony giving me a chance at trying something, at actually taking on my first executive role, I did the same. You know, I learned from him. He was a great role model. And I remember at Western Power, there was a, a lovely, lovely fellow who had been the media person for years and years and years. And he didn't sense it in himself because we spoke about this afterwards, actually. He didn't see it in himself and he didn't sense it in himself, but he was tired. He was, he'd been at the job for too long. He dealt with too many power outages, too many storm events, just too, too much of managing the media. And he was tired and it was coming through in the way he communicated the message to the media. And so he loved the poles and wires of the business and oh, sorry the generation side of the business he just loved it he loved the you know he loved the fact that there were gas turbines and all of this sort of stuff he loved it and so when we were looking to where we would move staff I suggested to him that he should head up the corporate affairs area for the the generation part of the business and he did not want to do that 
He did mm. not want to do that, but I was very firm about it. I was not taking no for an answer, actually. And so we talked through it, talked through it and talked through it. And he eventually, and he said to me, well, you know, at the end of the day, you're the boss. I've, I've got to do what you say. And he, so he went to that area. And some 12 or 18 months later, I bumped into him and he said to me, thank you so much. He said it was the best move that I have ever made in my career. I would never have done it without you mm -hmm. and I would never have done it without the push. And so I think that, you know, I will only ever be as, as good at my job as those that work with me, that those who put the wind under my wings. And so we have to look out for how we can help move them on and progress their careers. That, that is really, really important for me. But I think it's also incredibly important for a business, whatever business you're in. Mm. Your people are the gold that will just keep thriving and keep building and keep you with a very sustainable, hopefully profitable, successful business. I couldn't agree more. So I don't actually like the term people are your greatest asset because they are, you know, people are humans and humans have potential. And for me, that the definition of a, a brilliant workplace is one where you can bring your whole self and every human can reach their full potential, which requires really great leadership skills. And that the ability to have those tough conversations with someone like the person you were describing to say, I've recognised something in you that you haven't recognised yet. It's part of leadership and the, the ability to then put the right person in the right place at the right time doing the right thing is actually, you know, it's key to business success. However, I, I suppose what I, I wanted to, to kind of explore now is how did you... Oh, there's no other way of putting it. You've worked in male-dominated environments and now you work in, <laughs> you work in a in a role that is contributing to closing the gender leadership gap or the gender gap in workplaces in Australia. And you know, and I would hope that being a world-leading agency, that that it actually helps the rest of the world do some some really good things as well. So I want to explore now, Libby, your views around women working in male-dominated environments, which arguably, apart from the aforesaid nursing and teaching and those other caring environments, prevail. How did you manage working in male-dominated environments? That's part one. And then we're going to talk part two about what advice are we going to give to women who are working in male-dominated mm. environments who want to advance their career? So part one, how did, how did you find yourself in these male-dominated environments and what did you do about it? Look, I just fell into it. I think I think living in Perth, um, goodness, there aren't a, you haven't got a huge opportunity <laughs> True. if you want a career. <laughs> you know, it's resources or construction or resources or construction, really, yeah. uh, or tourism. I've always been quite fascinated by the resources industry anyway. It is intimidating to be the only female around a board table of you know a dozen men it can be very intimidating and it goes back I think to this communication thing too if you if you're in a presentation and a whole lot of gobbledygook and 
engineer speak and geology speak and all of those, that sort of speak is being thrown at you and you don't understand. It's very easy to sit there and let it go all go over your head and pretend that you, you do understand. Mm. And what I discovered quite early on, thank goodness, was that I would always ask that dumb question because actually nine times out of 10, I discovered that I wasn't the only one around that table that did not understand whatever that was that someone was trying I, to communicate I'm to laughing, me. I'm laughing here because that's the acronym thing, isn't it? People say, oh, we use oh. A, yeah, a blah, blah. Like, what is that? Well, we don't know it's, either. We just use no, it. No, that's right. And so I will always ask that dumb question. And I think the way that I often got round it was through humour. You know, I'd make fun yeah. of myself. I'd be self-deprecating in doing so. That was my coping mechanism for doing that. And, you know, was that, was it wise? Well, it was the way, it was the way I coped and I had to cope. And so um, I'm not so self-deprecating now. I can still, I will still occasionally be self-deprecating, but uh, not as much as I used to be. So you find these funny little ways to work your way through. It's interesting too, that a little later on in my career, I had a, a very good guy that worked with me who has become a friend. And, you know, there've been a couple of times where, you know, there's been a rough meeting or, and I'm not a shrinking violet. I generally say what I think because I believe that that is my role as a senior executive in any organisation or as a board member or whatever it is, you must challenge where you believe you need to challenge. That is what you're being paid to do. And so I will always challenge when I think that something doesn't quite gel with me. I will challenge, I will ask a question about it. And after some sort of tough meetings or whatever, a couple of times this friend has come up to me and said, that was rough in there. You were not treated all that well. And he has said, uh, you would have been treated very differently had you been a man. Mm. And that that was from his observations. And you sit there and you think, you know, it it is a tough gig. It's a very tough gig for some women. Uh, and I think the bulk of women actually working in all male, you know, in, in heavily male-dominated industries and, and organisations because you're often that lone voice. It's a different voice. And it goes to the heart of this whole gender equality thing, Michelle, because why do we often recruit and appoint people who look and sound like us, who may have had similar educational background to us? Why do we do it? We do it because it's the safe option for us. Mm -hmm. They're less likely to challenge us. They're more likely to think like us. So if around a table you've got 10 of those and one of me, and I'm very clearly not a man, <laughs> uh, and I haven't got the same background as they have, that, you know, they're being challenged. And people often don't like being challenged, particularly when they feel that they're under the pump. And I can say it's often come at, it, on a couple of occasions, it's come at the cost of my job. Yep. And there, there would be, it's interesting, as you were talking, I was having some 
some you know visuals going through me you know mental mental visions of of a couple of situations in my own career when in your words I'm quite obviously not a man and someone who challenges the the status quo not a shrinking violet all definitely characteristics of mine but it is it can be wearying and mm. and particularly when you haven't necessarily got a uh, an ally or a I wouldn't say sponsor, but certainly an ally or a vocal ally. I've certainly had, as I imagine you probably have people who are ready to support me before and after the meeting, but not necessarily in the meeting. And which is frustrating because I want that support when everyone's around the table, not afterwards. So how... That's right. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And that's why I make a point. If, you know, if somebody is, and I think what I've, do you know what I've learned from that? The thing that I've learned from it, if I, if I know that there is a particular issue that has to be addressed and it's coming up in a meeting and I know that my view is probably contrary or, or, or my thoughts are contrary to the majority or particularly the leader that I may be working to, I'll caucus. Yep. I'll go out and individually start talking to the different people that are going to be at the table and talk to them and tell them what I think and caucus to try and get that support and say to them, look, will you support me in this? If you don't, I'll bring it up anyway. Yep. But it would be great to have some support around the table. And I learned that the hard way because it's a very lonely place to be the odd one out around the oh, senior executive table. It is. And, and I, I think, you know, that that lobbying for for support, but even it's, I think it's, again, speaks to your your strategic outlook. It's, it's saying, well, how do I get the best or how do I create the best impact from this time and, and this idea that I've got? Yes, I'm going to lobby. But the other thing is it's taking the surprise element out. I've never met anyone who likes to have a, a surprise, good, bad, or indifferent in a mm. meeting around the business achieving its fi- you know, financial or strategic goals. So, again, I think that's a really smart strategy and good advice uh, for those, those women who are in those environments, particularly at senior and executive levels where they find themselves as the only or, or the other. listening to Lead to Soar. Find information on upcoming events and learn how to join the network at leadtosoar.com. In terms of words of advice then, what advice or words of wisdom would you give to the women who are listening? And I, I hope there are a few men listening as well, but uh, and we'll, you know, I'll do a whole thing on male allies separately. But what are those words of wisdom to women who are listening, particularly those who are saying, gee, that sounds like me. I'm navigating this workplace where I'm so committed to the brand, the business, but it is male dominated. I do find myself as an only or an other. What would you tell her? I think you've got to try and find those that you, that are your natural allies, and 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 they're your allies because you've recognised that they, you know, they think more like you, they act more like you, they have the same or similar values to you. So find those natural allies and work with those natural allies to 
build a relationship that will be more supportive of you in that at those executive team meetings. I think that's really, really important. The other thing that I would say, because a lot of these things I think you discover that through the, just the way, you know, we all work anyway. But the one thing that I think we all need to work really hard on as women is supporting other women. Yep. And I still see, Michelle, much to my disappointment, many senior women who are not supportive of, of other women who still have that attitude of I had to do it tough, you can too. You know, nothing gives me more pleasure and more joy and a greater sense of satisfaction than being able to help another woman navigate their way through a maze, a maze that might be a male-dominated industry, a maze that might be her way working to the top, whatever it is, being able to provide some advice, you know, just a, a shoulder to cry on occasionally yes. or, you know, a cup of coffee when things are looking particularly daunting. That Those things are easy because all it is is a little bit of your time and none of us are too busy to provide that time and that help. And so I think as women, we must do that for one another and not, not leave women out in the cold because we had a, a tough journey to get where we got to. So that to me is terribly important that we make sure that we do that for each other. Well, you're, you're speaking my language there again, Libby, and I, I couldn't agree more. And, and I do use the analogy that you know, my son is is a sparky and he does all sorts of important things now up on mining sites, would you believe? But I was terrified <laughs> when he became an apprentice about the hazing and the bullying that apprentices mm. have to go, go through. And, and fortunately, we're starting to see less and less of that. But it's the same thing. Yeah, he will mm. be, in fact, we were only talking the other day, he will be a much better leader, a much better manager because he doesn't want others to have that experience. He wants to create a great workplace. I am the same, you are the same. Just mm. because in the 1980s when I first joined the workforce, things were different. I don't want my daughter, my nieces, any other woman to experience that. And I think it's great advice. So today we've heard from you about the power of language and using your relationships to really tell the stories that businesses need to hear. We've learned about your love of learning and the fact that you are a quick learner and that helps you take career risks, which have clearly paid off for you. Those transferable skills, really understanding, and I think you're very, very clear about what your strengths and your skills and what you bring um, to the table is. I love the piece of advice, always challenge the status quo because that's what you're being paid to do. And But be wise about it and find your allies that will help you challenge that status quo that is linked to the business's strategic and financial goals. So Libby Lines, you are a wealth of knowledge and I very much appreciate you taking the time to share your wisdom, your knowledge and your advice with our listeners and once again, thank you to you and your extremely awesome team who helped make my job to guide organisations to close the, the leadership and the gender gap in workplaces so much easier. So Libby Lyons, thank you very much for being with us. I very much appreciate it. 
Well, thank you, Michelle, and thank you for your kindness because it is very clear in all you do that you are kind. And you know what? It costs nothing and it's actually very easy to be kind, much much easier to be kind than it is to be nasty. So thank you. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Lead to Soar. We sincerely appreciate your honest, positive reviews. You can leave questions at leadtosoar.com for Michelle and Mel to answer on future episodes. Until next time, we hope you'll use what you've learned here and lead to soar. Thank you.